Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Luke chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and she began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked the demons and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that it's your word to us or that you have spoken to us through your prophets, through the apostles, and you've spoken to us through your son. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Pray that as we come to the preaching of your word, God, that your people would love your word because it is your word. But let it be more to them than just words upon their ears. But by your spirit, would you cause the word to come alive in their hearts? Lord, work in them to make them more like Jesus. Comfort and encourage them. Strengthen them, O oh God. Lord, use it to draw them even closer to you. Father, help me, your servant, or give me endurance, and Lord, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. Oh God, you are our rock, our redeemer, our fortress and ever-present help in times of trouble. So we ask this prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there was once a very close call that occurred during U.S. naval exercises off the northeastern coast. Weather was bad and visibility was worse. 
a ship's captain happened to be looking out over the water when he saw a faint light in the distance that was right in the path. Immediately, he got on the radio and he sent out a message. You are obstructing our course, he said. Alter your course 10 degrees south. A reply came back, negative. You alter your course 10 degrees north. The ship's captain was furious and he sent another message. I am a captain in the United States Navy. You alter your course 10 degrees south now. Follow my orders immediately. Again, a reply came back across the waves. Sir, this is uh, Seaman Third Class Jones. You must alter your course. 10 degrees north. Uh, needless to say, the captain was now beside himself. He gets back on the radio. He says, listen, Jones, I will not alter my course. You will alter your course 10 degrees south right now. I don't know what kind of vessel you are, but I am a U.S. Navy battleship. Sir, the reply came back. You will alter your course. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> what I love about this illustration, besides its humor, I do like its humor, is that it highlights a very important truth about authority. Authority is delegated. Any authority we have has been delegated to us, whether you're a parent, or a teacher, whether you be a supervisor, a police officer, even a high-ranking official, or perhaps even an elder in the church, all authority that we possess is authority that has been given to us. And as was the case with that captain, this delegated authority can be misused, and if necessary, it could even be usurped. But there is an authority even greater than such delegated authority. In fact, it is the authority from which all earthly delegated or given authority flows. And it is the authority that is on full display in our text this morning. It is authority that bows to no one or no thing. It is authority that is ultimately, well, ultimate it's ultimate authority. It's what Jesus displays here in Luke chapter four. It is divine authority. In verse 31, Luke notes that Jesus went down to Capernaum. Uh, I think Nazareth is something like 1,700 miles, or 1,700 feet, sorry, above sea level, right? And then uh, Capernaum would have been about 700 or so uh, feet below. So he goes down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee. And it says that he was teaching them on the Sabbath. This sounds like an ordinary Sabbath day in the life of Jesus, doesn't it? You may remember from last week, as we mentioned, uh, it was Jesus's custom to attend uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And now that he is full on in his ministry, it is his custom to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And here he is yet again doing that which was quote unquote ordinary. 
but this day will be anything but ordinary. For the events of this day are going to both establish and confirm again the divine authority that Jesus possesses as the Messiah that is his by the very nature of being God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. The events of this day will show that his authority is indeed ultimate authority. So to help us see the divine authority of Jesus in this text, I wanna highlight three ways in which he exercises that authority. First, let us consider together Jesus's divine authority in preaching. If you're taking notes, that's the first of three points this morning. Jesus's divine authority in preaching. I want you to take note of how the people in Capernaum responded to Jesus's preaching in verse 32. Look back there again. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. The people were completely amazed. But why? Why? Well, they were used to teachers who spoke only with delegated authority. Teachers who, when they taught the scriptures, uh, spent much of their time only quoting what other teachers had to say about the passage in front of them. It would be like if I got up in front of you and only quoted John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards or B.B. Warfield or whoever you might think I would quote and say, well, this is what he had to say about the passage. And then this person had this to say about the passage. This person disagreed with that person. And they said this, that's the kind of teaching they were used to. Their theology, their teaching was all secondhand at this point. In fact, one ancient rabbi has famously said, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not first hear from my teachers. Just repeating what others had said before him. You see, these rabbis, these scribes in Jesus's day felt that their primary function was to be expounders of their traditions. They had set aside the word and the will of God. Gone were the days before when Levites and prophets, uh, gone were the days when these people would open God's word, when they would read God's word, when they would clearly declare what it meant and then apply it to the lives of the people right in front of them. Gone were the days of Ezra where the giant pulpit was constructed and he stood up and he read the law of God. And what did the people do? They mourned and they wept because they had broken God's law and revival breaks out. Why? Because God's word was preached. God's word was explained. It was applied to the lives in front of them. These scribes, their work had become little more than academic banter and justification for the millstones that they were tying around the necks of the people. Millstones that were dragging them down and away from God's will. But now along comes Jesus and he speaks not as one of the scribes of his day, but he speaks with authority divine authority. Not only does he preach about God, he is God. Not only does he expound the word of God for them, he is the very word of God for them. So when he preaches, what he says is the very word of God in all of its divine authority. 
Oh, how I'd love to be in those sermons. How I would love to be there. And so the people recognize something is different. Something is different. And they are astonished. The pastor of one of Philadelphia's old downtown churches, it's a a liberal congregation in sad decline, once asked Philip Riken, who is the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, why so many people were gathering to worship at 10th Pres. This pastor wanted to know the secrets to Riken's apparent success. This is how Riken responded. We preach the word of God. How come so many people are gathering there? We preach the word of God. That pastor was not impressed and Riken shared that he might've even been offended, but it bothered Riken none. He concludes by saying this, whether people understand it or not, God does his work primarily by the preaching of the word. Well, you're not hearing the voice of Jesus today. My voice is not his voice. We don't hear Jesus preaching to us today. We do have the word of God. The scriptures you hold in your very hands are the very word of God. And the scriptures possess his divine authority. That's why we are to submit ourselves to the word. The word regulates everything. The word regulates how we worship. The word governs what we say and what we sing in worship. And the word certainly remains the focus of what we teach about in our worship. The authority that I or any of the elders have is only delegated authority. So when we preach or when we teach, we long for you as I just prayed by the work of God's Holy Spirit to not only hear my voice or our voices, but to hear God's voice. Don't be astonished by me. Don't be astonished by the preachers you hear preaching on your podcasts or whatever. Don't be astonished by any human. Be astonished, be captivated by God's word, period. Be captivated by God's word. As God's people who've bowed your knee to King Jesus, please don't settle for anything more than the right preaching and teaching of God's word. Don't settle for anything more than the right worship according to God's word. And don't settle for anything more than the right living of your lives in light of and subjection to God's word. Then and only then will you rightly celebrate just like these hearers did, the divine authority that Jesus has in your life and in the life of his church. Praise God for his word. This brings us to the second demonstration of Jesus's divine authority. And that is, for those taking notes, his divine authority over the spiritual realm. That's our second of three points. Jesus's divine authority over the spiritual realm. Verse 33 reveals for us that in the synagogue that day, there was a man who was possessed with a spirit of an unclean demon and that he was crying out. I mean, talk about an awkward interruption. 
of a worship service, right? I mean, people will sometimes ask me, uh, did you hear that? Did you hear my phone go off? Did you hear my child? I'm like, I, I, I don't think so. I don't know. I'm not focused on it. This is, a, this is something that happens that everyone has to pay attention to, right? This like is right in the middle. It's like a bomb dropped in the middle. Everyone knows what's happening. This demon-possessed man is there in the service a good reminder for us about when we gather together. It's a mixed gathering, right? So we gather together and there is one in their midst with the spirit of an unclean demon and he's crying out. Look at verse 34. Your ESV says, ha. Might also be leave us alone. That might be the uh, original there. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I, I can only imagine what this scene was like. I mean, you can picture the people looking around at each other in despair. All kinds of anxiety and anticipation are likely filling the air as he spoke. But as Luke presents it, Notice it doesn't bother Jesus one bit. It doesn't appear to bother him one bit. How does he react? Verse 35 tells us that Jesus just says, shut up. Okay, be silent. We tell our kids not to say shut up, right? So be silent, right? Come out of him, get out. There's no debate between Jesus and the demon. There's no battle between Jesus and the demon, just as we sang earlier, one little word shall fell him. Like a tree being chopped down, the demon immediately leaves. Luke notes that it isn't without some drama though. The man is thrown down. That's really interesting. The demon throws the man down, but notice the man is not harmed. Even though his exit would be dramatic, the demon had to obey Jesus and he wasn't even allowed to do any damage on his way out. Jesus, the king of all, has divine authority over all, including all the spiritual realm. And with swift, resolute words, even this demon obeys him. Don't miss that. This isn't a battle between two forces where we're not sure who's gonna win. Jesus speaks, the demon obeys. Now, unless you're on the front lines of largely unreached places in the world, you don't get to witness much demonic activity. We know from the scriptures, particularly passages like Ephesians 6, that the devil is still active, that the forces of evil are constantly warring against Christ the King and his bride, the church. And this is seen most today in those places where he is most active, those places where the gospel has not yet penetrated. This shouldn't surprise us, okay? This shouldn't surprise us. I'm not denying that demonic activity doesn't happen amongst us because it does, but reports from missionaries and people everywhere is that most of it happens on the front lines where the gospel has yet to penetrate, right? We may not see it, but it shouldn't surprise us. And when we do see it, it shouldn't surprise us. I don't want you to miss though. It'd be easy to get focused on that. 
where are the demons today and how are they active? Well, we'll have time to talk about more demons later as we go through this book. But I wanna take, because the focus, I believe Luke's focus here, why he brought this event forward here is to talk about authority. I think the most important part of this whole encounter magnifies the authority of Jesus. How did the demon respond to him? Very similar to the way the demons respond over in verse 41. These demons know exactly who he is. They recognize Jesus. He's the Holy One of God. He's the Son of God. And they know they must obey him. This is so important because I believe it contains a dire warning that all of us need to hear. This demon in the synagogue at Capernaum, in the church, actually says more than the people of Nazareth had said at their synagogue last week. If you remember, what did they do? They denied Jesus. They wanted to take him outside and throw him off the cliff. They denied Jesus and denied his word. What did this demon do? This demon actually affirms Jesus and affirms his word. This demon gives what we might actually call a confession of truth. This demon utters, is he wrong? No, he utters what we might call a confession of truth, but take note, it is not a confession of faith. It's a confession of truth, but not a confession of faith. It's impossible to affirm that something is true. Excuse me, it is possible to affirm that something is true without really believing in our heart that it's true. To put another way, you can say and know true things about Jesus, yet have no saving faith in him. You can sit in church and say the creeds and confessions and read the scriptures, and you can live and read the scriptures and try to follow the law and in your own work, save yourself. You can do those things, but you may truly have no true saving faith. Many years ago, J.C. Ryle said it this way, and he said it very pointedly. We may go on all our lives saying, I know that, and I know that, and sink at last into hell with those very words on our lips. Jesus gives a parable of that right on the last day. All these people, we did this, did we do this, did we do that? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. So I think the warning is for us to not let those who only pay lip service to the divine authority of Jesus, because he has divine authority over the spiritual realm. He certainly has divine authority even over our very eternities. Let not the words of our mouth be used to just further condemn us. Rather, may the words of our mouth shed light on the condition of our hearts. In other words, may our words flow from the condition of our hearts. May they show that our hearts have been changed by grace and through faith. We want our words to confirm the saving faith that we've been given. We don't wanna just pay lip service to God. When we reflect on our faith, may we also stand amazed, just as the people in Capernaum who witnessed this exorcism. They recognized Jesus's divine authority and they were amazed by it. Just as we said earlier from Colossians 1, aren't you not amazed that Jesus has delivered you from the domain of darkness 
and transferred you into his very kingdom, the one who has spiritual power and authority over all the spiritual realm has changed you from death to life. And with that, we now come to our third and our final point this morning, Jesus's divine authority over the physical realm. If you missed that, Jesus's divine authority over the physical realm. After the synagogue service, when everyone had greeted one another, right? And they were all going their very way. Luke tells us that Jesus went to Simon's house. Now we haven't yet met Simon in Luke's gospel, but this is Simon Peter, okay? This is Peter. Uh, Luke uh, says that he goes to Simon's house. Apparently, we'll just go ahead and call him Peter, so we understand who we're talking about. Peter's mother-in-law was ill. She was sick with a high fever. And the people were appealing to Jesus on her behalf. Verse 39 tells us what happens next. Jesus stands over her and rebukes the fever and the fever leaves her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. The language here leads us to believe that her fever is so severe that she is like on her deathbed. Okay, she's not gonna get up and do anything. And notice what happens when Jesus rebukes the fever. It leaves, she's healed, and to give proof of it, remember Luke's writing the gospel of certainty. He gives the evidence of it. She gets up and serves. She gets up and begins tending to the needs of her guests. The same king who had taught people the word and triumphed over their demons is showing himself to also have power to heal their physical bodies. All he had to do was say a word, rebuke the fever, and it was gone. No ceremony, no jumping and dancing around. No, all he had to do was say a word. Now we're familiar enough with Jesus to know to expect this kind of miracle. Sadly, when we read it, we're like, oh yeah, ho-hum, move on. It shouldn't be that way. Think about the people who were there that day. Put yourself in their sandals. It was such an amazing occurrence that what happened? The word began to spread quickly. They began to tell other people what Jesus had done. And before you know it, people were coming to him in droves. Look again at verse 40. When the sun was setting, according to the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath would have begun on the night before when the sun set and it would end when the sun set. That's why they're all coming out now. They're coming out in many. They're coming to him. Verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. Imagine the scene. I don't know if we really can. We've never really seen it before. We've seen it counterfeited. We've never seen it before. Jesus is laying hands on multitudes of people and every single one who came to him was healed. No litmus test, no amount of money given in the offering, just healing, just merciful healing. The merciful king with all authority has even the authority to heal do you believe that Jesus has the same divine authority today? Does Jesus have the same authority today to heal us? Does he still have divine authority over the physical realm? We know, we confess, hopefully we believe in our heart that he made the world and everything in it. 
He upholds and sustains the world by the power of his word. He has the power to overrule creation at any moment to do actual real miracles. He has the power to do that at any moment he chooses. And here's where a solemnity comes across the room. This can be tough, especially when we're the ones sick and suffering. In fact, I look around and I think of the many of you who are sick and suffering in many ways. I, I can say we certainly pray for Jesus to heal you. We certainly believe that Jesus can heal you when and where he wants to. He has the divine authority to do just that. But we also know that he chooses at times to not bring the healing that we so desire at the time we want it. And that is where one mentor told me one time and it stuck with me. He said it this way, the rubber of our faith meets the road of our afflictions. The rubber of our faith meets the road of our afflictions. Even in our sickness and suffering though, here's what we can know. That there is coming a day, that promised day in heaven when indeed all will be healed. And while we await that day, we can also know that God is using often, right? He's using our physical difficulties to do his gracious work in our lives. We can learn to rest that our road many times, it looks just like Jesus's road looked, that the pattern of our life is going to look just like Jesus's. What do I mean by that? It's a road of suffering that is followed by glory. And so we too, Often in taking up our cross, we're called to suffer as we await that day of glorious heaven. I know that's hard. I even know that it may not be what you want to hear. But another piece of advice I heard years ago that I'll pass on to you. Don't let your health be a test of Jesus's love for you. Don't let your sufferings be a test of Jesus's love for you. Jesus does love you. And it's possible you can at one and the same time cry out for him to heal you and affirm that you will submit to whatever he decides according to his will. You know, you can do that, right? It is faithful to pray for healing. And it is, pray, it is also wonderful to submit. It is faithful to pray and to submit. You can yearn for something while striving to remain content just where you are. It all comes down to a simple realization. I think one that we often forget and why I'm glad that Luke has us focusing on authority. And here's what we need to realize. It is Jesus who wears the crown, not us. It is Jesus who wears the crown, not us. King Canute, was the Christian Danish Viking king, right? Who ruled over England from 1014 to 1035 AD. Growing tired of hearing his court constantly flatter him with extravagant praises of his greatness and of his power and of his invincibility. Uh, legend says that King Canute ordered that his chair be brought out and set down on the seashore. 
He took his seat there and began to order the waves not to come in and get him wet. No matter how forcefully he ordered that tide to not come in, guess what? It never obeyed. Soon in the sight of all, as tide fully comes in, the waves had lapped and overwhelmed his chair. They ran out to get him because they're afraid he might be swept away. The legend continues and it says that at this moment, Canute led his court back to the castle. He removed the crown from his head and he hung it there on a statue of Jesus Christ and he never wore it again. King Canute knew that it was Jesus who truly wore the crown and that it was Jesus who was eminently worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And like him, we need to believe and we need to live like we know that it is Jesus who wears the crown and not us. This all becomes easier. I would say it actually becomes more peaceful when we realize that any authority we have has been given to us. It's delegated authority and that any blessing we receive from God is truly unmerited. Unless you think I've lost sight of the passage, notice that even the people of Capernaum had to come to this realization as well. We're told down in verses 42 through 44 that the very next morning when Jesus had retreated to a desolate place, it was his practice to retreat and pray to his father. The people sought him out and they came to him. And notice what Luke says. They would even try to keep him from leaving. They didn't want him to go. Who would, right? Who would? They wanted more of the miracles. They wanted their own personal Capernaum Jesus. They remind me of what I hear. We, we drive a lot. My kids go to school in Pataskala. We live in Newark. So we, we drive a lot and we listen to a lot of Christian radio and not to throw the whole thing under the bus, but I hear lots of songs about we need a miracle and we need the power and we need this and we need that. And I think, what's happening? What's happening? Jesus is not your divine vending machine. Bow your knee to him. He has worked. He will work, but he has a mission for his church for his people, and that's exactly what he says. He is their divine king with absolute authority. So what does he tell them? This good news is not just for you. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to be your Santa Claus in the sky to call out to and see that you've done good. And so I'll give you something in return. I came to usher in the kingdom and to rule and reign over it. Jesus came for that purpose, not to set up his own ministry shop in Capernaum, but to usher in the kingdom, not theirs. And so certainly not our own kingdom either. So I think the call for all of us is to bow our hearts to him in faith. We need to say in faith, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is our king. 
Glory be to our King. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?